Welcome back to Silence's Platinum. I'm your host, Jessica Keaton, and this is the latest entry in our series called No Talkies, Silent Forever, where we are covering silent film actors and actresses who died before they were able to appear in a talkie, cementing their fame in the silent era. This episode is going to cover four silent film actors and actresses who lost their lives in the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic. Influenza was everywhere, and even children could be heard on the streets skipping jump rope to, I had a little bird. Its name was Enza. I opened the window when influenza. This dreaded disease took the lives of roughly 40 million people across the globe. We are only covering four here, but other notable names who died in the pandemic were Admiral Dot, a famous performer for P.T. Barnum, French performer Gabby Delay. John and Horace Dodge, the founders of the Dodge Automotive Company, Charlie Chaplin's first love, Irish dancer Hetty Kelly, and artist Gustav Klimt. These are just a handful of names, and an entire podcast could be made on the pandemic and all of its victims. However, like I said, these four early players in Hollywood are going to be our main focus. Let's begin, shall we? True Boardman was born William True Boardman on April 21, 1882, in Oakland, California. He was the only child born to W.T. Boardman and his actress wife, Caro True. Just four years after he was born, his father passed away, leaving Caro alone to care for her young son. True followed in his mother's acting footsteps and began appearing on stage around 1900. He would travel up and down the western coast with a touring acting troupe, and it was in 1911 that he made his film debut in the Selig Polyscope short, The Rose of Old St. Augustine. During his career, he would work for other studios like Calum, Universal, and SNA. He appeared mainly in westerns, and during the early years of his career, he appeared opposite Bronco Billy Anderson. One of his most popular screen roles was as Congressman John Wallace in the serial Stingaree. The serial consisted of 25 episodes involving a cowgirl, played by Marin Sace, and her adventures in the Wild West. The serial was originally released in 1915, with Boardman playing Irving Stingaree Randolph, an Englishman masquerading as an Australian bandit, out to seek revenge against a brother who wronged him. The reason behind the break between the 1915 serial and the 1916 revamp was because True took some time off from acting on screen to act on the stage. When asked for his thoughts on the new stingery, True told reporters, The whimsical, temperamental stingery is a role that I will never forget. But I must say that I like my new part even better, for the stories of the girl from Frisco are of the real West and the action the sort that send a red-blooded thrill through your veins, even as you are playing it. As a native Californian, it gives me an extra touch of pride to be able to bring the entire country the beauty, vigor, and dash of the new and greater West. 
True's final film release during his lifetime was 1918's Danger Within, which was released about four months before he died. He had two films released after his death. One was The Romance of Tarzan, released a month after his death, and The Terror of the Range, which was released roughly five months after his death. True Boardman passed away on September 28, 1918, from influenza. Newspapers, however, reported that his cause of death could have been a nervous breakdown or nervous prostration. A sad-slash-interesting find was that 10 days before his death, True filled out a military registration card. World War I had recently ended, so I'm not sure why he would be enlisting, especially given his physical health. Regardless, on the registration card, True listed his occupation as patient, and his residence as the State Hospital in Norwalk, California. True was buried at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale, California. True Boardman was married once to actress Virginia True Boardman. The couple married in 1901 and had one son, True Eames, later the same year. They would remain married until True's death. Their son would also appear in films beginning as a baby in his father's films, he would go on to become a writer for both film and television. True Boardman was an ideal Western actor. A 1917 newspaper article described him as being six feet tall, 180 pounds, and very muscular and strong. They also mentioned he had brown hair and blue eyes. Unfortunately, due to death coming far too soon for True, he is hardly remembered today for his contributions to early filmmaking. Thankfully, with technology today, we are able to view his films and see his work and appreciate it just like movie-going audiences of the 1910s and 20s did. For your own viewing pleasure, go to YouTube and check out 1918's Tarzan of the Apes, which is the first Tarzan screen adaptation. I have to admit, though, it's hard to watch without hearing Johnny Weissmuller's Tarzan yodel. Harold Lockwood was born Harold Adna Lockwood on April 12, 1888, in Brooklyn, New York. He was the only child born to William Lockwood, who trained and bred horses, and his wife, Jane Hartshorn Brown. Harold was a lot like his father, who sadly passed away when Harold was around seven years old. He enjoyed keeping horses with his father and was also very athletic, being most proficient in swimming and baseball. After graduating high school, he pursued a career in the exporting trade. However, his top career goal was to be a, quote, New York millionaire, or so he told a hometown newspaper. With such lofty goals in his head, it's no wonder that Harold soon became bored with the export business, and he didn't seem to be getting anywhere with the whole millionaire thing. So he began focusing his attentions on acting, and soon began appearing on the vaudeville stage. He would make his film debut in the 1911 short, The White Red Man. During his career, Harold worked for various studios, including Selig, Nestor, Bronco, Famous Players, KB, American, Metro, and the York Film Corporation, which would be the last studio he worked for. His most popular films were the one in which he co-starred with Mae Allison. The pair appeared together in over 20 films, which, of course, led people to believe that the two had been an item off-screen as well. 
On one occasion, a newspaper even reported that the two were married. It seems in this case, however, that Harold and May's romance was only happening on the silver sheet and not between the sheets off screen. Like a lot of silent screen performers who were around at the beginning of the medium, Harold also worked behind the camera as well. He directed at least one film, A Man of Honor, although he went without credit. And sadly, the film was released posthumously, so Harold was unable to see his work be appreciated by his fans. And speaking of fans, Harold was quite popular among audiences and critics alike. A New York newspaper reported that Harold had to order 20,000 photographs of himself to meet the demands of his fan mail. He eventually had to hire a secretary to help him respond to as many letters as they could. Sometimes, he would be up until all hours of the night, signing up to 500 photos. Moving Picture World magazine called him beloved by all the world for his brilliant, clean, and wholesome talents his every production a box office success. Motion Picture Magazine noted, He looks so full of the joys of youth, so straight and active, and there is such a mischievous twinkle in those blue eyes of his, and such an independent jerk to that toss of blonde hair when it comes too forward, and there is such a big, glorious future in his ambitions that, well, it is good to be Harold Lockwood, with so much ahead and so little regret. He was a looker, it has to be said. His looks and talents combined made it so that he was pulling in one of the biggest salaries in the business at the time. And because of being so high in demand, Harold was able to ask for, and usually receive, anything he asked for and was afforded many privileges. It seemed like everything was coming up roses for Harold, until it all came to a sad end. Harold was in the process of filming Shadows of Suspicion, a war drama, when he became ill with the flu. His illness caused many delays in filming, and as a result, script changes had to be made and a double filmed from behind made up for his absence. Sadly, Harold Lockwood passed away on October 19, 1918, in New York City. His funeral was held at the famous Frank E. Campbell Funeral Home, the same place that would host the funerals for Roscoe Arbuckle, Rudolph Valentino, and Florence Labadee, to name a few. After the funeral, Harold was interred at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. Harold's death didn't mean that he completely disappeared from the screen. In fact, three more films of his were either in post-production or collecting dust on a shelf after his death. The final film of his that was released while he was still alive was the 1918 short Liberty Bond Jimmy, in which he played the titular character. In 1919, three films were released by the York Film Corporation, The Great Romance, Shadows of Suspicion, and A Man of Honor. Now, on to the personal life of Harold Lockwood, which ended up being much more intriguing than I had originally thought. In 1906, Harold married actress and makeup artist Alma Jones. The couple would have a son, Harold Jr., in 1908. Naturally, upon his death, newspapers reported that he left behind a widow, a child, and his mother. However, multiple newspapers reported that he also left a fiancé, or a, quote, friend, as some chose to refer to her. The LA Times reported in December 1918 that Harold was engaged to a woman named Gladys Lyle. 
Her sister, a Mrs. R.C. Emerson, told reporters that the couple had planned to marry on November 10th and that they had already purchased wedding rings and a lot in which to build a house. She also said that Gladys was sick with grief following Harold's death. Because of the fact that my sister feared Mr. Lockwood's popularity as a screen hero would be injured if it became known he was to be married, the pair decided to keep their engagement and even their marriage a secret. My sister is slowly recovering, and we hope she will soon be her old self again. Upon further research of Miss Gladys Lyle, I found that she could have been either a stenographer, secretary, or an actress. Most likely, Harold met her around the studios. In March of 1919, the Santa Maria Times reported further on what was happening as far as Harold's estate, months after his death. The will of Harold A. Lockwood, a motion picture actor, has been filed for probate by Gladys W. Lyle. The Lockwood estate is valued at $40,000, and under the terms of the will, the petitioner, designated as a friend, receives one-third. The remainder of the estate was divided equally between Mrs. Jenny Lockwood of New York, the actor's mother, and his 10-year-old son, Harold. Mrs. Alma Lockwood, former wife of the actor, is not mentioned in the will. Now, I couldn't find anywhere that stated that Harold and Alma ever divorced, but they very well could have. One would hope so, since Harold was apparently going to get married in November. Wouldn't be the first time a couple was engaged when one or both were married to other people. Ormer Locklear, for example. He and Viola Dana were apparently engaged, even though Ormer was still legally married to his wife Ruby. I would love to know what the situation was, but I can say with almost 100% surety, Alma Lockwood would not have been happy to have been excluded from Harold's will. This is even more interesting considering that Harold didn't really enjoy going out in the town to Hollywood clubs and parties. In fact, he preferred quiet gatherings. I guess these gatherings just may have included one or two ladies. The business with his will and beneficiaries wasn't the last time that Harold's name would be dragged back into the papers. In 1919, a man named Arthur C. Baker was arrested for writing bad checks under a number of aliases, including Marshall Lockwood. He apparently claimed to be the brother of Harold Lockwood, and therefore his checks were obviously good. His ruse was quickly cut down once he was arrested. Film fans were obviously devastated when the handsome actor passed away at the age of 31. One fan was just 13 years old and wrote to a fan magazine requesting just one more picture of Harold. In another magazine article from 1916, Harold had some prophetic words to share with movie-going fans. My youth will pass quickly enough, and I will be a character man before so many years have gone. I believe in making the best of opportunities I have. And as I am honestly in love with screen work, I intend to devote all my energies to keeping the position among motion picture artists that I have worked so hard to attain. Even more prophetic was the interviewer commenting that he would like to possess Harold's ability and his future. After his death, a newspaper wrote about how both Harold Lockwood and Sidney Rankin Drew, who was covered in an earlier episode, both had pictures in theaters, but had both passed away. The author ended the article by saying, During the evening, it was hard for the people in the audience to realize that both of the stars are dead, and that it was a return from the mysterious vistas of the unknown tomorrow.
Myrtle Gonzalez was born Myrtle Lillian Gonzalez on September 28, 1891, in Los Angeles. She was the oldest child born to grocer Manuel George Gonzalez and his former opera singer wife, Lillian Cook. Myrtle later would be joined by younger siblings Stella and Manuel Jr. According to a few newspapers at the time, Myrtle and her family could trace their ancestry all the way back to ancient royalty of Spain. Myrtle Gonzalez as Catherine of Aragon? Now that would be a great movie role. This ancestor of royalty earned her education in a convent. She appeared to have gotten some of her mother's talents because she enjoyed singing in the church choir and was noted for being an accomplished singer. On top of singing, she also enjoyed acting. She was so good at that too that people began telling her that she should be in pictures. What made her introduction to films even easier was the fact that she just happened to have grown up in what was now fast becoming the new movie-making capital of the U.S. Myrtle was hired by the Vitagraph studio and made her film debut in the 1913 short The Spell, playing the friend of lead actress Mary Charlson. Myrtle would stay with Vitagraph for about two years before moving on to Universal, where she stayed for the remainder of her career. All in all, she appeared in about 80 films and shorts in three years. She was known for appearing as the heroine in action films, proving to be one tough gal who could handle her own. Which is interesting, because juxtaposed to her action film roles was the nickname she was given by a fan in Tokyo, the Virgin White Lily of the Screen, a nickname Myrtle prized. Myrtle frequently received rave reviews from critics and audiences for her performances. One critic for the Los Angeles Times said, Myrtle Gonzalez always typified the vigorous, out-of-door type of heroine. Another newspaper spoke about her striking Southern beauty, and the motion picture studio directory would describe her as an ideal leading woman. Being but a few inches more than five feet in height, she has light brown hair and eyes that photograph well. She is a native daughter of California, was born in Los Angeles, where she has lived all her life, despite the fact that she has gained a worldwide reputation. Myrtle would make her final film appearance in the 1917 Universal film The Showdown, playing the lead female role. She was really going places, and was a fan favorite, which makes it even more tragic to think that almost a year after this film was released, she would be dead. On October 22, 1918, Myrtle Gonzalez passed away from influenza in her hometown, Los Angeles. She was just 26 years old. She was buried at Calvary Cemetery in Los Angeles. Her father would be buried next to her when he died the following year. Newspapers reporting her death appear to have had their information mixed up. The Los Angeles Times reported that her death was caused from a fall from a horse while making a film three years prior. Her death was reportedly indirectly related to this accident. However, I couldn't find anything to substantiate this. Perhaps an early example of Hollywood reporters trying to spice up a seemingly simple cause of death. She did not leave a will, and her estate consisting of a house, a vacant lot, clothes, and a car was worth around $3,700, or over $61,000 today. These were left to her widow and her seven-year-old son. The aforementioned widow was Myrtle's second husband, actor-director Alan Watts. The couple married in 1917 and appeared to have retired from filmmaking after their marriage. 
According to newspaper reports published around the time of the marriage, Watts was in the army and was stationed in Washington, so the couple had to relocate. Apparently, the Washington climate did not agree with an existing heart ailment of Myrtle's, and so Watts retired from service and they moved back to California. The heart ailment was reportedly due to altitude sickness, which she developed in 1916 while filming The End of the Rainbow. Apparently, she came out of the sickness with an enlarged heart. Watts soon after went back to directing while Myrtle recovered at a house on Catalina Island, or at least tried to, before she developed influenza. Myrtle's first marriage was to actor James Parks Jones in 1910. They had a son, James Parks Jones Jr., in 1911. I'm not sure when they divorced, but it seems to at least have been in the mid-1910s. When Myrtle wasn't acting, she enjoyed sailing, riding horses, tennis, basketball, and hunting. She also liked to take long walks. Myrtle was also very particular about the spelling of her last name. She was sometimes credited in movies with her last name spelled G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S. The misspelling of performers' names on title cards happened frequently for some reason. Myrtle made a point of spelling her name out to the motion picture story magazine. Please remember to spell my last name with a Z. Twice. Because that is aristocratic Spanish. Shortly before she passed away, a fan wrote into Motion Picture Magazine to express her love for the actress. You can't help but love her, by gollies. She's full of the pep as tamales. A form a la Venus, I'll tell you between us, there's no one like Myrtle Gonzalez. This next entry concerns a Russian film actress. I'm going to apologize ahead of time if I happen to slaughter some names here. I'm trying my very best. Vera Kolonaya was born Vera Vasilyevna Levchenko on August 30th, 1893 in Poltava, Ukraine. I don't have much information on her family other than her mother's name was Yekaterina Slepsova and that when she was just two years old, Vera went to live with her grandmother in Moscow. It was here that she began taking ballet classes at the Bolshoi Theater Ballet School. The young woman, who would become known as Russia's first movie star, got her big break due to her own bravado. In 1908, Vera went to the theater and saw a play that starred famed Russian actress Vera Komosarvzeskaya. It would be a few years later when young Vera would walk up to Russian film director Vladimir Gardin and ask him for a role in his next film. Gardin, amused by the 20-something young lady's moxie, gave her a small role as the Italian wet nurse in his 1914 screen adaptation of Anna Karenina. Unlike her idol of the stage, Vera didn't knock people's socks off with her acting abilities right off the bat. For the first few years, she was getting film roles based just off her looks, which, it goes without saying, were incredible. Vera had big, beautiful eyes, but she didn't know how to use them to make an impact on the screen. Early on, she would mimic another idol of hers, actress Asta Nielsen, when it came to using her eyes to convey emotion. Eventually, she learned what worked best for her and was able to use her luminous eyes to great advantage. 
Two of Vera's most popular films were 1917's By the Fireplace and 1918's Be Silent, My Sorrow, Be Silent. The latter film was based off a traditional Russian love song and was quite controversial when it came out, probably due to the main character Paula, played by Vera, having what some would see as loose morals. This film, along with four others, The Children of the Age, The Mirages, A Life for a Life, and A Corpse Living, are the only films of Vera's that still survive. It has been thought that Vera may have appeared in over 100 films, but due to her films being destroyed around 1924 during the Russian Revolution, only a few managed to escape. Vera's most famous picture wouldn't be released until shortly after she died. And sadly, Vera didn't have any idea that she would appear in such a film. On February 16th, 1919, Vera Kolodnaya passed away in Odessa, Ukraine. Her cause of death was attributed to the Spanish flu pandemic. She was just 25 years old. Thousands of Vera's fans attended her funeral to pay their respects to Russia's first movie star. One of the directors Vera had worked with in the past filmed the crowds and the service so it could be shown on newsreels for even more people to see. This macabre tribute footage is Vera's best-known film, and it managed to survive destruction by the Bolsheviks. Vera was interned at Odessa's first Christian cemetery, where she rested for almost 15 years. However, in 1931, the cemetery was demolished. Vera's family begged to exhume and move her remains to a cemetery in Russia, but they were refused. The cemetery was completely razed, and Vera's remains were either destroyed or the location lost to time. It wasn't until the 1970s when the film Slave of Love, a loosely based biopic of Vera, was released that people began to remember her. As the years went by, Vera slowly began to be recognized in both Russia and Ukraine for being a leading lady on film and a cultural icon. A postage stamp bearing her image was created in 1993 in Ukraine, and ten years later, a life-size bronze statue of her was placed near the last home she lived in, near Odessa's Cathedral Square. Vera was married once, to race car driver and sports newspaper editor Vladimir Kolodny. The couple married in 1910, much to the disapproval of both families. The couple would have a daughter, Eugenia, in 1912, and adopt a second daughter, Nona, the following year. Vera and Vladimir remained married until her death, and sadly, Vladimir would die two months later, followed a short time later by Vera's mother. Unfortunately, I don't know what happened to their daughters after their parents' tragic deaths. Vera's death was, and still, is surrounded by an air of mystery. Although her death has been attributed to the Spanish flu pandemic, there were whispers that Vera had in fact been poisoned by a French ambassador that she had been having an affair with. The story goes that Vera not only was an actress, but she was also a part-time spy, keeping an eye on the Bolsheviks. When her rumored lover found out about Vera spying, he had to kill her to silence her. The story would make great reading in a Russian novel, but there is little to no evidence backing it up. For a young lady who was nicknamed Queen of the Screen, it's hard to think about the fact that her career only lasted three years. But during that short time, Vera made a big splash and attracted many fans and accolades. 
Her films and even her final resting place may have been destroyed, but thankfully her memory survives. Upon hearing the news of her death, Russian performer Alexander Vertinsky penned a song in her honor, Your fingers smell of church incense, and your lashes sleep in grief. And so, we have reached the end of another episode. Our next entry in this series will be a bit of a miscellaneous episode. For the previous episodes, I divided the actors and actresses into categories based on their cause of death. I divided the next 13 actors and actresses up into categories based on the year of their death, beginning with the earliest, 1913 to 1917. It'll make sense once you hear the episodes, I promise. Make sure to rate and review the podcast so I know if you're loving the content, and also, it helps to spread the word. Also remember to check out the Silence is Platinum blog at www.silenceisplatinum.blogspot.com for pictures and source info on this episode and others. And feel free to email me at silenceisplatinumpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or if you just want to say hi. Over on the Silence is Platinum Instagram, I'm currently doing a series of movies released each day and also an outfit of the day post. If you want to follow some of those with pictures and info, just go to Silence is Platinum on Instagram and click the follow button. So, until next time, remember the immortal words of Miss Mary Pickford. Adding sound to movies would be like putting lipstick on the Venus to Milo. Shh. Stay silent.